So our text this morning is Romans 6, 15 through 23. Paul writes these words. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms. Because of your natural limitation. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when we were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, good morning. It is so good to see so many faces here because typically Memorial Day is one of the least attended services throughout the year. I remember when I was early in my preaching days in Orlando, I was just a a volunteer who was going to seminary and I got to preach four times a year and it was Memorial Day, 4th of July weekend, Labor Day weekend, and the Sunday after Christmas. So the pastor said, if I'm gonna give you a shot up here, it better be when like one fourth of our people are actually in the service. So good to see so many faces here on a holiday weekend. We've been going through the book of Romans, and Paul has spent a great amount of time, like in the beginning of Romans, like showing us how deep our sin goes. And we're transitioning, we've seen these last few weeks, of like how big his grace actually is. But in the beginning of Romans, when we see like how big our sin actually is, like how deep that rabbit hole goes, we see that we are much bigger sinners than we ever dared imagine. All of us, we are all guilty of sin. But the good news is, is that God didn't leave us there, did he? Uh, God sends his son for us who takes all that sin and shame upon himself and it is nailed to the cross with Jesus. And this marvelous thing happens when we believe the gospel. And this is what Luther called the great exchange where Jesus takes on all of our sin and instead gives us his Righteousness, So that when God the Father looks upon us after we believe and follow Jesus, he no longer sees our sin, but sees Jesus' righteousness upon us. The gospel is amazing. What's hard to grasp sometimes about this gospel is it is not received by status or power or knowledge or even by good works, but it is received by faith alone. God's grace cannot be earned. It is a gift that is offered to us, despite how deep our sin goes. You might be sitting here and you think, man, my sin goes so deep, there's no possible way that that grace could cover it. God's grace goes deeper than our sin. The good news of God's grace is that it is big enough to cover all our sin in Christ Jesus. 
So Paul, where we're at in Romans, he knows that the tendency in some, so like if I talk so much about grace, there's going to be some that think if, if salvation is not earned and it is a grace, then why do I have to live any different? If God no longer sees my sin because he sees Jesus' righteousness upon me, then why not eat, drink, and be merry because life is short? That's what Paul's addressing here in the second part of Romans 6. Look at verse 15. What then, are we to sin because we are not under law but under God's grace? By no means. You know, last week, Nate began chapter 6, and it begins kind of in a similar way with, with a question which Paul answers in the exact same way. And last week we saw, should we sin more so that we might receive more grace? Paul says, no way. That doesn't make any sense at all, to, to keep sinning so that you might receive more grace. And then the question here this morning is, should I continue to live the same way of a life of sin because I am under grace? And of course, Paul says, no way on that one too. Paul has been talking a lot more about grace, yet some in the church are, are still missing the point. I want you to picture for a moment a quadrant in your head, four, four different squares. And on one side, you have high grace and low grace. And on the other side, you have high expectation and low expectation. And I don't know if expectation is the right word. If you think of a better word, come and grab me after service and, and tell me what a better word would be. But if you think about legalism or moralism, what that would be is you have this high expectation and low grace. Right? You're, you're expected to follow all the rules, check off all the boxes, pull up your bootstraps, and when you fail, which you will, when you continue to sin, there will be no grace for you. That's legalism. Now flip that quadrant around a little bit, and what's high grace and low expectation? Well, that's what some consider cheap grace. That is, I don't have to live in a, a different kind of life because I have received grace. I'm not under law, but under grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a martyr in, in, in Germany, he wrote in his great book, The Costs of Discipleship, he said this about cheap grace. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost, the essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? We're going to return to that quote a little bit later to understand like what grace is if it is not cheap. But this reminds me of like the, the parable that Jesus tells about the prodigal son who just grabs his inheritance from God and he, or his father and he just goes off and he, and he spends it on worthless things. Just think about Halloween for a second. Just picture being a kid. I know this is going to be a little harder for some of us to do than others. We have kids five and up in here. So kids, I want you to think for a minute when, if you remember when you go trick-or-treating, Right? You, you go around and you go to all these houses and you fill a bag. I know the last few years we've gone into the Larson's old neighborhood and the kids take these pillowcases and fill these pillowcases full of candy because they have an awesome uh, neighborhood for trick-or-treating. Larson's, we're going to have to go back to that same neighborhood in October for sure. 
But when you get this bag of candy and you bring it home, right, what's going to be the temptation? Well, this is my bag of candy. I, I earned this. I'm the one who went around to all these houses, so this is mine. I can eat as much as I want. And if you can recall when you were a kid or if you've done this recently, you end up eating a lot of this candy, and then what happens? You, you end up with this stomachache, right, and you regret your decision to be able to do this. I can still look back at candy corn and circus peanuts, and I, I like throw up in my mouth a little bit just thinking about that candy because I ate too much. I regretted making that kind of decision. That is kind of like what cheap grace is. It's receiving grace but continuing a life of sin. It's sweet to the lips but leaves you with a bellyache. No one who returns to a life of sin looks back and said, man, am I glad I did that. That was a good decision. Does grace allow us to have a casual view of sin and continue to live in sin after we have received grace? And Paul says, by no means. And Paul continues in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Paul says, once we receive grace, we can't continue to dabble in our old life anymore. Jesus tells us in, in the Gospels that we, we can't serve two masters, and that what is, that's what Paul is getting at here. Our hearts were made for worship. That's what we were created for. And what we worship, we will serve. And Paul says here that we are slaves to the one whom we obey. Now I want to pause for a moment and talk about slavery because I, I bet that most of us in this room, when we think about slavery, we think of kind of a race-based slavery. And I want you to get that image out of your head because what Paul is, is referring to here is a spiritual slavery. The one we worship, we will serve. We will be slaves to the one we worship. And we are slaves to sin. We live in bondage to sin. And John 8 34, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. When we practice sin, sin becomes our master. We become slaves to it. And if you follow the trajectory of this passage, for the one who is a, a slave to sin, not only you are you a slave to it, but there is a, a shame that comes through it, which leads to lawlessness and impurity, which leads to more lawlessness, which leads to death. That's not a pretty trajectory. It's not a good ending to that story. But let's back up to where this trajectory begins, and that's, that's with sin. When we think about sin, we probably first think about sins like lying or stealing or murder. You know, we probably have this like Ten Commandments view of what sin is. But if you think about the Ten Commandments, how, does it, how do the Ten Commandments begin? The very beginning of that is, you shall have no other gods before me. Do not make idols. The Ten Commandments begins with things we worship before God. We worship other created things and make things ultimate, things where only God should sit. Theologian John Calvin said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is, from our mother's womb, 
expert in inventing idols. And what Kelvin means by this is because of sin in our hearts, we often make things ultimate and put it in the place where only God should go. Our, our hearts are idol factories. Tim Keller, who's done a lot of work on idols, says that it's not just bad things, but even good things we do this with. We even make good things ultimate things. This could be things like money or, or your job, or you know, wanting to do a good job in your workplace or in family. But once these good things become ultimate things, once these things you look to to give you contentment and significance outside of God, they become an idol. Keller gives us a, a good test to know whether our hearts might be loving things inappropriately. And he says three things. So I want you to just think for a moment when I read these off and, and just think, like, does my heart have a tendency to do this? The first one, he says, is anger. If something blocks you getting a good thing, you get angry. But if something blocks you from getting an ultimate thing, you become irate. You say things you later regret. You hurt people with your words. You do things you wouldn't normally do because some kind of spiritual master is controlling you. Second thing is fear. If something good is threatened, you're worried. But if something ultimate in your life is threatened, you're paralyzed with fear. You absolutely fall apart, can't think straight, because some kind of spiritual master is controlling you. Third thing is sadness. If you lose something good, you grieve, you weep. It's terrible. But if you lose something that is ultimate, you feel like your life has come to an end. You feel like life has lost all significance. There's no meaning left in it because some kind of spiritual master is controlling you. Paul asks us this question. Once we receive God's grace, should we continue to live in sin? And he says, no way. No way. Because there's a better way to live. Notice that the language here doesn't turn from slavery to free, but the focus remains on slavery. And what Paul is driving home here is that when we are freed from slavery, we are freed to slavery to God. I know this sounds really strange when we talk about slavery in this kind of way of like, how could I really be free if I am free to slavery to God? That doesn't make sense. But I want you to remember that this is talking about a spiritual slavery. So you are free to slavery to God, and that's a good thing. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart of the standard of teaching which you once committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves to righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. I read this blog of a guy who was writing on Romans 6, and he said when, um, 
when he was in seminary and he received the teaching on Romans 6, like he just wanted this class to go on forever and he, he didn't want it to end. And then when it finally did end, he skipped his next class in seminary and ran home and had to tell his wife about this good news that he had heard about Romans 6. And he said, what struck me that day is that where sin once sat on the throne of my heart and life, grace now sits. In Christ, sin is no longer my sovereign. It is no longer my master. I am no longer a slave to sin, having to obey its every enticement and command. I have been set free. We have been set free from a spiritual slavery to sin and set free to a spiritual slavery to God. Where sin once sat on the throne of our life, now grace sits there. Sin no longer is our spiritual master, God is. Yet, sometimes it's still hard for us to leave our former master, isn't it? Sometimes it can be extremely difficult to make that transition to, to following a good God, and we go back and we dabble in our old life of sin. Now, why is this so hard for us? I'll give you two reasons. One is because sin has become a habit for us, or like the Bible often calls it, our flesh. We, we just return, it's habitual, it's what we've always done, so why not just return back to it? And the second thing is, is it because we forget who we are. In Christ, we have received a new identity, but oftentimes we forget who we are. When people spend their whole lives in prison, they struggle to know how to live as a free person once they are released. One of my favorite examples of this is from probably my top five favorite movies, The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, such a good movie. Um, but in this, you see Red, who finally receives bail after 40 years in the slammer, and he moves into this halfway house, and he gets this job at this little market in town. And uh, he's working in this market, and every time he needs to use the restroom, he asks his boss if it's okay that he goes to the bathroom. And the boss finally says to him, you, you don't have to ask permission. When you have to go, just go. And Red realizes that for 40 years, he has been told when to go to the bathroom, and he can't go a drop without permission. This is a little bit like what our habits have sin have created in our lives. When we live a life of sin, it is so hard to move completely from that and be able to follow Jesus and this enticement to go back, to go back because we have been slaves to it for so long that sometimes we forget and we don't know any better. Imagine for a moment that you are a slave to a landowner and this landowner is harsh, like he works you really hard, like long days, doesn't put you in a good accommodations, treats you poorly, often calls you names while you're out there working and, and you have no rights and there, there's no freedom at all under this rule. Then one day this landowner of the property next door comes in and he purchases you from this other landowner. And he purchases you, buys you in full, and he moves you over to his property. He doesn't put you like in a slave's quarters, but he puts you in his own house. And he feeds you well, and he cares 
for you well. And when you work for him, uh, it, it is good work and it is good compensation and he compliments you all the day while you're working and he gives you a freedom that you have never experienced in your life before. I mean, life is good. But then one day you're out there working in the field and it's bordering the place where you used to live and, and your former owner comes over with, with all of his slaves and he begins like speaking across the border and he's berating you. He's, he's calling you names and telling you you don't deserve where you're at. And, and as every name piles upon this, of all this, these names and how worthless you actually are, the weight of each word is added to your back until finally you can't take the pressure anymore and you fall down to the ground on all fours, still berating you. And what you think in your mind is, is I should just return. I should just go back. He's right. I, I am worthless. I don't deserve what I have got. I'm just going to go back to my old slave owner and I'm going to work for him. And just about the time you're going to stand to your feet, you remember who you are. You remember that you don't belong to that master anymore. You don't have to listen to him. You don't have to obey him. You have been purchased into a new family and have a new freedom and a new life. And all at once, all those burdens are removed and you stand to your feet and you look at that former master and you say, I don't have to listen to you anymore. And you joyfully return to your new work and completely tune out the former. This is what the second part of Romans is talking about here. The first abuse of landowner is sin, and the second loving landowner is grace. And Paul says in this opening verse, what then, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace by no means? Paul is saying, of course you have the freedom to return to your old life, but why would you want to? I know it's a habit, but see clearly for what it is and choose the alternative because serving this spiritual master doesn't lead to more sin and death, but sanctification, righteousness, and eternal life. The spiritual master loves you and knows what's best for you. So we also need to remember who we are. We need to remember our new identity in Christ. There's an old story. I wish I could remember where I heard it so I could give credit to it. It's probably uh, just an old fable or something, but it goes something like this where there's a mouse on the bank of a river and uh, it needs to go across to the other side, but the, the water's fast and the rapids are coming through and he doesn't know how he's going to safely get to the other side. And then the snake swims up and says, well, hop on my back. I'll take you to the other side. And the mouse says, no, 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 no. I have known plenty of snakes, and you will eat a mouse like me. And the snake says, no, 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 I, I have changed. I am not that same snake anymore. Hop on my back, and I'll take you across. So he said, no, 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 I, I can't believe it. I can't believe that you would actually change as a snake. I, I'm not going to get across. And the snake says, I have been reformed. Jump on my back and I will get you safely across to the other side. 
So the mouse, thinking he doesn't have a lot of alternatives because of the rapids, he said, if I, if I try to swim across, I'm probably going to get washed down the river or some other animal is going to meet me. So my best choice is to jump on the snake's back. So he gets on the snake's back, and the snake takes him across to the other side. Well, almost. About three-quarters of the way across, the, the snake flips the mouse up into the air and into his mouth, and he eats the mouse. Now, there's a couple of animals standing on the other bank, and they look at him and shake their heads, and the snake says, what? I'm a snake. It's kind of an interesting fable. Not really the imagery I want to leave you with at the end of the sermon. But here's what I want you to take from this. Here's the difference for you and I. You are no longer a snake. You haven't just changed. You haven't just been reformed. You have received a new identity. You are someone absolutely, completely different in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You were dead in your sins, but now you are alive in Christ Jesus. This is your new identity. And with that, you are no longer a slave to sin, but you are free to be a slave to God. You no longer use your life for instruments of sin, but for righteousness. You know, we spent a little time in silent confession earlier. Um, Just on Thursday night, our city group was meeting here. We had some chairs in a circle, and we spent some time just confessing at the end of uh, our group. And I had this thought, and city group, I know some of you guys are here, you're going to get this twice. But I had this thought of, like, as a Christian who's been following Jesus for a long time, like, like how, how am I still here? Like, how am I still, like, coming up with so many good things that I can confess and repent of? Like, shouldn't I have this all figured out? And I'm kind of hearing these lies in my head, like, why, why even try this anymore? Like, why don't you just give up and throw it all away? And then the thought just occurred to me that, that every time we confess our sin, like, even when we were doing that earlier here today, Every time we do that, we remember our identity. We remember who we are in Christ. And let me tell you, church, like when you leave this building today, everything out in that world is going to want to destroy you, tell you you're worthless, tell you you're not beautiful enough, not talented enough. It is going to try to tear you down to the ground. So as a Christian, we often need to repent of our sins, confess our sins to one another, and remind each other of who we are in Christ Jesus. Because we have a new identity. We are children of the one true king. And this king came for us and laid down his life for us. So church, being that this is what Jesus has done for us, let us serve the one who has served us. Here's how I'm going to end us this morning. I want to, I want to close by returning to this idea of, of cheap grace because it's never cheap when we know what it costs us to receive it. Philippians 1 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, being, being, uh, taking the form of a servant, this is referring to Jesus here, and the same word for servant is doulos, the same word that's talking about us being a slave to God. Jesus is taking on that very form. In verse 8 it says, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus takes this form of a servant, a bond servant, a slave, whatever you want to call it, and he uses that and he takes that all the way to death, even death on a cross, so that we might be rescued. I'd say to return to this quote later, but Bonhoeffer continues to talk about grace, and he says, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of a son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us all. This is the same grace that we are offered. This is the same grace that would cause a man to drop his nets and follow Jesus. This is the the same grace that if you found a, a treasure in a field that you would sell all that you have to buy that field. This is a grace that calls us out of being slaves to sin and sets us free to be slaves to God. Let's pray. God, we come before you, and we praise you for who you are. We praise you that even at one time we were your enemies and running away from you and rebelling in all kinds of ways, that you still made the ultimate sacrifice for us. You still paid the price on our behalf. And Father, it is amazing that when you see us now, you no longer see us as as sinners, but you see us as righteous because of Jesus God, I pray that we would begin to see ourselves more like the way you see us. Children of God, those who have been set free from sin and freed to a new life in you, God, help us to see us in the light in which you see us every day. We pray this in your name. Amen.